So do they call you Coop? You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as hip as my guest. And my guest just asked me if they call me Coop. And yes, Courtney, they do. In fact, when I talk to some people, they think my name is Coop or Cooper. So I get a lot of emails that address to Cooper, and I never know if I should address them back as Steve Cooper or Coop. So that's the answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did know one very elderly man named Cooper uh, in the, outside of Jackson, Mississippi, which is where my wife is from. Uh, and uh, he said, look at old Ben, why don't you marry a Yankee? Yep, that's my one Cooper Duckworth quote. Well, there you go. His first name is Cooper because my last name is Cooper. But we're here to talk about you. And my guest people is Courtney Well, Kelly now I Kim. have, you, you know, I have two, both of my names, all of my names are now first and or last names. Now, do you run into, how did that, you know, isn't that funny how that changes? Like for me, when I was growing up, Cooper was a last name, and then it started becoming a first name, and then a lot of dogs were named Cooper. A lot of people have pets named Cooper. But for you, you're right, Courtney Taylor really? Taylor. Yeah. Yep, yep. It's true. And and then, it, you know, I was the only Courtney as a child that I had ever, anyone had ever heard of. And I also lived, you know, in Port, the Portland area, Portland, Oregon, in the, you know, in the 20th century was a total armpit. So it was pretty, you know, we were isolated. We, we didn't have a lot of names that weren't, you know, Jeff or David or Kevin or Mike or Mark. So, um, but now, then, then like there's girls and there's porn stars, there's football players. It's everywhere, you know. And, oh, did you, uh, God, Courtney Love, uh, you know, lived lived in Portland. That's where she met um, Kurt Cobain at Satyricon, which was basically my living room for my entire life until uh, the Dandies got signed and you know just kind of took off on tour for the rest of eternity. But um, she, uh, you know, she was a very very aggressive social climber in the Portland, you know, alternative weirdo scene which was a very small and very weird kind of loserish punk wavo art freak scene and um when i was 17 i was at some lucky rich kid's house that got to have an apartment while in high school downtown so a bunch of the wavos are hanging around you know looking through day i remember david bowie had come out with a first interview in forever with a big wave to his groovy hair 50s motorcycle jacket levi's turned up at the cuff and pointy black cowboy boots and these more a couple other new wavos came in and introduced themselves and i said i'm courtney okay you're mike okay you're david you're courtney hey i'm friends with courtney love she says you got to change your name or she's going to kick your ass <laughs> true fact <laughs> No, I, I gotta ask you. You know, you said where you grew up was it was an armpit. Then, what what made you get into music? Yeah. I want to talk about the new. Album. What made you get into music? You know, growing up, what was your life growing up as a kid? Um, very suburban, lower middle class. You know, our our ranch style house. Uh, 
was exactly like both next door neighbors, but on one side it was turned around so the back was the front. And then on the other side, it was turned, flipped directly upside down. So the garage was on the other end of the house, but the doors in the center and the, you know. So, and most of the houses were like that. Um, we had a nice park and a nice lake uh, that was probably a half mile walk. Uh, I don't know, maybe four football fields. I don't know. You know, it was sweet. It was very, very, um, very safe and cool. Uh, you know, people, people didn't move in or out that much. I did have a couple great friends and then, then they moved out in the neighborhood, but there were so many kids our age, you know, the sixties housing, housing, lower middle-class housing development. Um, but we also had 150 acres of undeveloped. So shoot BB guns and, you know, everyone had a, dirt bike motorcycle building homes so uh you know there were piles of lumber and shag carpet rims and um you know so we always had forts we had forts and uh boy scout paper drives produced many many years of play boys and penthouses <laughs> so you have Pink Floyd, you know, in centerfolds and, uh, you know, maybe truck in the neon poster of the dude, truck in the arms, swimming in the chain with a watch, gold watch yeah. on the end and in parts with shag carpet rims. And it was, it was a really groovy time. And what got me into music, because it was just a thing. It was just part of the world as everything is when you're, you know, a little, little, little guy, like four years old. Um, I heard Killer Queen. And I remember there were a good number of adults in the room, and I'm looking up, and, and why are they still talking? You're cutting out a little, Courtney. This, this is not... Courtney, you're, you're you're cutting out. This is a thing. This this I was told later. Pardon? You were cutting out. What? Oh, fuck! You are kidding. Wow, that really sucks. I love that story, and I was really in it. Well, tell it again. Uh, I, I have you clear now. Tell me it because you 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 had the you had the chain with the swinging and the guy, and you were listening to the Killer Queen. And then Killer Queen came on. At some point, I don't know if there was a party or something, but there were a good number of adults, and I'm looking up at them, and they're still talking. And I'm like, why are they still talking? Can't they hear this? It was so different than anything. You know, music was just part of the sofa, the wallpaper, um, what's going on outside. Uh, you know, it was just the same as everything else uh, when I was when I was that young, when I was, when I was four. So, uh, yeah, Killer Queen is the first time I noticed music and knew that it could do this thing, to me at least. Uh, I was told I became a very good boy and went to bed, lights out, on time, every night. Um, and later in years, which I remember distinctly because I, would, I wanted the lights out, I wanted everyone to go to bed, so I could sneak out of bed over to the radio, 
turn it on really quietly and just start turning channels until I found this song again. Because it had to be there somewhere, right? In my mind. Uh, so what happened was I then heard Radar Love. And that did it too. And then, and I had an older brother. I used to, I have an older brother and, and did then. Um, so that kind of was access to kids who were older and kids in the neighborhood. So I had heard the term cool thrown around and I just assumed that this is what it is. This is what it means. This feeling I'm getting right now from this song and from that other song the other day is what it feels like to be cool. And that was music for me. And then um, a couple of years later, we were out in eastern Oregon. We would go and camp or in the yard of uh, our cousins who had like a double wide and uh, and, a, and a, a real shop to work on their cars, muscle cars back then. Uh, and then we'd go hunting. And we were little. I was probably six or seven. And if they were going to really go out and do some hunting, they wouldn't uh, bring the little kids. So my cousin Pat sat me down in his room in front of his vinyl player, put on Ziggy Stardust, leaned the album cover up against the, the wall on the shelf and said, here, listen to that. We'll be back in a few hours. And, uh, and so that was then um, uh, this whole other, okay, you know, I was older. And things just started happening. You know, I just started noticing that nothing in this world made me feel as cool as listening to hang on to yourself or, um, you know, any, any of the greats, old stuff from a whole lot of love. Jeez, that was a, wow, that was a trip. I remember specifically when I hearing that for the first time. Um, yeah, it was just, there is this, there is this kind of music and it, you know, in the eighties it was, uh, writing on the Metro by Berlin. Um, it was, you know, there was this whole other. Well, the eighties music scene just really, it, it took us in a different direction because we're around the same age and you're right. You know, the eighties had an introduction and when MTV came out, it was an introduction to actually see that, hear this music that we weren't going to hear on the radio. Yeah. I mean, it made bands, you know, White Wedding was a MTV driven hit. Um, and that was just unbelievably cool with that. I actually talked to Steve Stevens about a year ago. And I, and I said, did you play on that, on White Wedding? And he said, yeah, man. I was like, God, it's so different than any other Billy Idol song. that in, You're on all of them, I guess. And he goes, yeah, absolutely all of them. And I said, why, why is it so different? He said, oh, we, <laughs> we had just watched... Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I was just going, I gotta play something like that. And so that single note, dang, dong, 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 you know, uh, obviously the Sergio Leone soundtrack is is pushed in out of tune, fucked up old instruments level is um, beyond the beyond. You know, they he 
he has a very nice tone, um, but it's a very cool tone. But it's not going, which, um, you know, obviously that soundtrack is probably the single most impressive movie soundtrack ever made. I mean, it's, it's powerful and there's nothing like it and it's pushed to the edge of unlistenable and yeah, it's amazing. But anyway, so that's what he was doing. That's thus. And it's amazing to actually get an answer like that after, I don't know, 40 years of wondering. Now, now, when did you start to play music? You know, you were enthralled by it. It was something that you loved when you were a little age. But when did you sit there and say, I, I want to do this. I, I love this. This makes me feel a certain way. I want to know how to do this. Well, it was more like taking lessons. Um, after I heard that first Killer Queen, I, I said, I want, I want to learn how to do this. And my mom said, oh, music lessons. So it was violin <laughs> it didn't last very long, and uh, that isn't bad. And then it was piano after that, and then um, it was drums after that. And drums is what I stuck to because that was satisfying. You could just put a record on and play along with it, and it was physical and it was rad. So I was a drummer. I played in symphonic bands. I went to you know, symphonic camps in the summer. That's where I met Pete. Pete and I first crossed paths as um, I think I was a junior, going into my junior year in high school, and he was going into his sophomore year. We were both symphonic musicians. I played in marching band, I played jazz lab, all of that as a drummer. And you, if you're going to be a serious percussionist in a symphony, you're going to learn how to play chimes, which is laid out like a piano. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed timpani. was kind of my favorite uh, of the instruments to play. And so you, you know, you've got to be able to, to tune them and, and, and you're just playing two very convenient notes that are, that are intervals that are powerful and convenient to the, the part of the music that you're going through. And, and you got to understand that, um, Percussionists are the greatest counters of ever. Uh, we're, we have a special gift for counting 136 measures patiently and not effing it up. And then that one moment, 136, 2, 3, 4, 5, bing, you hit a triangle. And then you count for 64 more measures of rest. And then you might do it again, or maybe you go over to the snare and lay out some crazy back to Maybe, could be anything, but we're great counters, percussionists. So, um, hold on, let me plug my phone in. Just a second. Okay. All right. Safe. Safe from uh, phone dying. Anyway. So that's my musical history. So you so so then okay, you're playing drums. So so when do you switch up? My karate instructor, who was my one of my best friends' dads, that uh, had the dojo two doors away from my house, um, just two doors up the street. Uh, he said, "I will trade you uh, karate and taekwondo." 
lessons and a little kung fu i think he had in there too but um uh for if you give me drum lessons and uh and i was like uh you know because his son and i sparred all the time so i didn't really need lessons from him. i said you know i don't really need lessons you know Vern and i do this pretty much every day and have done for you know a couple of years so um he said, well, you know, I'm not going to learn how to play guitar, but I have a guitar. I'll trade you guitar for guitar for drum lessons. And I said, great. <laughs> so um, I, I, I got a guitar at the same time I got a, what we had back then was a four-track cassette player that recorded not two tracks of left and right, but four tracks all in the same direction. So you could lay down drums, then you could lay down a guitar over it, then you could lay down a bass, and that's three. Then you can bounce those over to that one empty track left over. Now you've got those three tracks. You can't go back and change them, but you've got those available so that you can now add synthesizers and two vocal tracks or piano or whatever. So I learned guitar at the same time I learned what recording truly is uh, without anyone telling me anything about technique or the technical specifications of sound or what it's really doing. It was only what I liked, what I wanted to hear and learning. I learned another chord. Now I can write a song with three chords. Now I learned another chord. I could write a song with four chords or I could just use this chord, this chord and that one. So, um, that all being became a fully developed thing at the same time. And then a few years later, graduated from high school, I went to the jazz college, the, all the gods of jazz that lived here, Leroy Vinegar, Mel Brown, Thera Memory, all these heavy, heavy jazz cats. You know, Mel Brown was signed to Motown Records. He was a he was their drummer, one of their drummers. Um, Leroy Vinegar's um, Thera Memory played with Diana Ross and all this. You know, I mean, it was like we had a heavy jazz school. So I thought that would be wise to to learn something that I that I really didn't know much about, you know, except the big, you know, Miles Davis, Cannibal Adderley or whatever, kind of the big names, Dizzy Gillespie. So that, I think that, um, and then the dandies a little bit after that. So, um, not being a drummer anymore, being a songwriter and a producer of much just in my bedroom, and now we're going to make a band and I'm not going to get good musicians because they have bad habits. I'm going to get beginner musicians with great taste and we're going to learn to do this together because that's how I did it. And we're going to do this now. So uh, I'm going to learn how to sing and play guitar and stand up with a guitar on a strap, not just sitting on my knee on my legs, you know, sitting down. That's the whole journey. I think I had to learn how to stand up, hear my voice through a monitor in front of me on the floor. Uh, yeah, and we just started doing it. But I had such an edge from being a recording nerd um, back then. Now everybody makes music on their computers and stuff. But I really, I really had to invent overdriving input stages to get the vocals or putting the compressor on and then taking it off on playback to make it hiss and a spitty, exciting vocal track or 
drums were great with that. Um, they invented digital reverb during the early days of my uh, recording, so you could you could buy a digital reverb unit and experiment with room size. Yeah. Now, when, I think that's it, man. Well, when you guys were starting out, you were you, know, you were like, were you confident in your songwriting then? I mean, how long did it take you to get feel confident in your songwriting? I got confident in my songwriting during COVID. Really? So it was. I mean, yeah, it was. Your a, whole it was career. a knuckle. It was a white knuckle ride being in a band with me. To if we ever were going to get another song out of that fucking guy. Um, yeah, they, they, every girlfriend I had, somebody would half Lucia or Pete would, or Hedford or whatever, Fathead, um, would half jokingly go, well, you know, if he doesn't write any more songs, you have to dump him. And they would go, oh, oh. You know, because that's, it was, uh, they were, the records and the songs were uh, referred to as Courtney's Loves and Losses for for a number of years. I think they then realized that um, I don't actually write about my relationships that much, but uh, but it was a good part of it for sure at the beginning. I mean, what else do you write about? Feelings, you know, when you're young. Now, now you said... During COVID, you got confident in your songwriting. What happened? What changed? What made you confident all of a sudden in your ability to write? I had this great idea that I would write a 30-second long song and make a video for it every week and post it every Friday until COVID ended. And how how did that go? It's it's intense, you know. I mean, particularly during that time where you're not active and, you know, bodies in motion tend to stay in motion and all that. Um, so being lethargic in general and then trying to write a 30-second long song and make the video, shoot a video and edit it and get it up by Friday, on Friday, fast Friday, 30-second song, fast song, not a fast song, but a fast experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, because Thursday comes around, and I'm stressed, and I'm angry, and I'm grumpy, and I'm tired, and I'm a whiner, and I'm down in the studio, so that's what the song becomes. It becomes a song about not wanting to um, write a song. You know, but you can only do that once. So maybe, you know, if that happened again, I would go, you know, I, I own a wine bar and it's it's the front corner of the ginormous studio that we have. And so I can always walk in there, pull out a bottle of champagne or a red wine, whatever I'm feeling like. And it's always good because uh, it's my wine bar. And, uh, and just have a glass of wine and then maybe another. And then uh, maybe the song will thirty second long song about being being high hide up on wine, you know. So it I, I really learned that I can do it, um, 
because obviously, you know, trepidation and self-doubt and, you know, self-analysis of your work, just as it's coming out of you, um, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. You just remember that you're going to edit yourself. So write the stupid thing down. Let it be stupid. Well, you know, Let it be you... embarrassingly ob- obvious or cliche. You'll fix it later. Um, I learned to do that, and then sometimes I didn't have the time. I just left it in, you know. Now, i got to ask you, though. Okay, in the early days, you know, you, you had hits. You were making albums, and you didn't have a confidence then. You just you didn't think what you were producing was good. I mean, I don't, you know, you. it wasn't like you were just some well, there were very, newbie. Well, there were very few lyrics, because I wasn't a lyricist. So I only just tried to say something that's on my mind in as few words as possible and try to remove... Uh, uh, anything that might be embarrassing. So there aren't a lot of words. And also, we really were a shoegazer band. We, that's how we started. I mean, that's all we did. We did, we tripped, we'd go play gigs and we, in San Francisco or Portland, and we would then go and do E and party all night and listen to The Verve and Mazzy Star and the Jesus and Mary Chain. And you know, try to find people to have sex with. And then we'd wake up in the morning, try to collect ourselves together, and um, and we'd try to recover, drink water, somehow get ourselves fed. And I just remember countless times all laying around together on the, on the coming, getting your, getting it to your shit together and getting kind of up and where we, we're going to drive today okay yeah. uh, but listening to the velvet underground mazzy star ride my bloody valentine again you know like just more and more so we were a shoegaze operation in the beginning um so it didn't require a lot of lyrics and intense stories it was all about the beauty and the texture of, of music now, when did you guys get your record deal? How did your record deal come about? Your first record deal? Uh, we had gotten um, uh, signed to... We, we had become the hot band in Portland. And um, so we got signed to an indie label, a Portland label. But it was the label. It was the label. It had William S. Burroughs with Kurt Cobain. Uh, it had Hole. It had, um, uh, I don't know, shit like The Head Coats. It had, um, yeah, it, it was just a, it was just a really happening uh, for an indie label. So we went to the studio, and we had Tony Lash, who had done, like, Elliot Smith stuff, Heat Miser, and he was, he was the guy. He was, he was very, very, very good. For a local dude, he was, he, there was nothing like him. So we got him, and then there was a lot of fighting because I had developed as a producer without having any technical schooling and then some technical schooling and recording classes in that jazz college I went to. So uh, 
and I didn't want a normal sound, obviously. Nobody in my band did. Um, so we had some fighting, but I definitely learned a lot there. Uh, I also, had, as a drummer in bands, had been interested in the filmmaking and had basically studied MTV since the day it came on the 36-channel box. And um, so uh, I, I, I knew a couple rules. One, you don't have more than two shots. You just go back and forth. You have a, a story, and then you have the band performance. So we had all our kooky friends dress way up and come to be the dancers. And we played uh, lip-synced to the song over and over and over and over. And... Um, and then uh, I followed my friend around while he vandalized a supermarket dressed as basically Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> and then I had to shoot it all back off my TV, make some black scrim to put around the TV, then shoot it all back off of there uh, with a video VHS camera put on auto record and then a VHS or no, it was a Fisher price cassette film <laughs> toy camera that if you ran it all the way to the end and hit record, it would stay in record, send it directly through to a VCR. So you could get that lo-fi uh, pixelated fisheye lens that it had going directly into a VHS tape. And so, uh, and I, TVs used to have the, the, the little, dials along the bottom so i rolled out all the color increased the contrast and got the texture right filmed it back off of that and uh and then a buddy of mine edited fish in the great northwest for cable so when he was done uh he would let me come down and he was his editing suite was maybe seven blocks from my house from my apartment me and pete's apartment so um I would walk down there at night and we would spend an hour or two editing this thing and then MTV picked it up and played it on 120 minutes at the top of midnight, the peak moment, two weeks in a row and that was it, major label bidding war. How does it make you feel when you have a bidding war? What, what makes you decide who to go with? Because, you know, the record companies back then... A lot of people got screwed, but what, did you go to legal counsel? Did you talk to someone? How did you decide who you who wanted to go with? Uh, you hang out with them, you know, and you look at what other bands are on the label. Um, you know, Radiohead, Mazzy Star, the Beastie Boys, um, you know, the, any label that can break Mazzy Star at the heyday of grunge uh, is, is a, the right label for us. I'll tell you that. So, but also we made, we had those guys, you know, those A&R guys, you know, we made them come to Portland. We made them go to San Francisco. We made them go to parties. We, with the Jonestown massacre and other psych rock shit bags doing piles of blow and, you know, just being fucked up. And just who can hang with and who doesn't embarrass us, who isn't an embarrassing person to have be in business with if you're going to be a band in, a, in the not just the West Coast, you know, groovy, stuck up 
hipster art scene, but the global one that we're about to get into. So um, the dude at, at, at Capitol, Perry Watts Russell, was very, he was English. He had graduated with a degree in philosophy from Cambridge. The first show he had ever gone to was Jimi Hendrix opening for Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd wow. in London. And he was taken by his older brother, Ivo Watts Russell, who was the owner of 4AD Records. That was Ivo's label. So this is the guy for us. And also, um, when we were talking to the radio guy, the college radio, maybe, I don't know, some, some promotional guy there at Capitol, uh, when they were trying to sign us in Atlantic and Epic and whatever, you know, I don't remember all the labels, but... Um, the radio guy, uh, my manager had asked him, so how did you break Mazzy Star? I mean, that's a hard one. And he said, well, we we saw signs of life in the South. And he goes, well, what else were you working? So we just fanned the flames. Well, what else were you working? And he goes, oh, you know, well, um, uh, you know, we, we had we had the room, we had the we had the bandwidth or whatever to do it at this at this time. And. Perry goes, well, we didn't have a, I mean, you can't say that if we had a Foo Fighters or a, or a Beastie Boys, that we were, you know, we were, we were rushing at commercial alternative radio. You can't say that we would have taken that much time and kept putting money into, we probably would have sent them on tour. And when they got back, you know, worked it for three months and if nothing had happened, we would probably say, do you want to go back into the studio? Do you want to tour some more? What do you want to do? And I just thought, wow, that's a fucking honest guy. He's more concerned about what the truth is than how we appear as a company to this band and their management. So um, that also made me just go, there we go. Now we're talking. Now we're not bullshitting around anymore. Now, when you know, when you good. when you get signed by that big label, how does your career change? Is it right away they put you on a bigger tour? What do they do to, you know, they have you record? Then what happens with you guys? Well, you know, we went into the studio. Well, you get a good agent, you get a big agent, and our first agent was Mark Geiger. You know, who is who was the first. Anglophile agent to gain prominence. You know, he had booked Echo and the Bunnymen. He, you know, he had he had booked all the Bauhaus, all the cool bands, right, out of L.A. And he's like a preppy uh, hey guy. You know, he's like a preppy hey guy. And uh, but he's got great taste in music and um, and a fairly savvy businessman. You know, over time, time has shown. Um, so he put us on with Echo and the Bunnymen's incarnation called Electrofiction. And we bought a really cool van and I welded in a futon. It was the popped up top and it was like an extra, extra long back. We sold the wheelchair lift out of it. It was a church van. Um, and so we could sleep four people. Uh, at one time in there, fairly comfortably, two on the futon and two on each of the bench seats. Uh, I mean, two on one on each of the two bench seats, and then um, 
Yeah, so it was it, we could really do it. We could chase a tour bus around as long as people rotated who was driving and didn't drive more than a few hours or a couple hours at night by themselves. Uh, and so that was cool. Then, then we said, yes, it's time to go into the studio. Well, we went in there and we probably did every kind of drug you can possibly do. <laughs> um, and I mean, at one time we, I walked over to the pinball machine and there were three like foot long lines of drug and they were all very different shades of like icky <laughs> color. And it was just like, oh my God. And we were just tripping and experimenting and we were a mess you know we were on acid we were on everything speed on heroin we were you know all it was it was absolutely gross we we failed to produce anything that capitol records would accept uh, and they said you know let's let's book you in with blah 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 blah, blah you know uh go back to your first record, Tony Lash, a responsible guy. You're going to fight and argue with him, but the dude gets it done and it gets, and he's great. So we went on tour with love and rockets. They were big fans of us and they little did they know they were absolutely the band of my life. That is my favorite band of all time. I interviewed, I interviewed, I, inter I interviewed Daniel a few weeks ago. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah, he's a sweet, he's a sweet guy. Um, yeah, yeah, he's a funny, spacey guy. He's cool. I really like those guys a lot. Uh, so we went on tour with them, and then we went back in the studio, and then we got it done, you know. But by then, we were, and then they released Not If You're The Last Junkie on Earth as the first single, and then when it came to releasing in England, they said, hey, this hasn't gotten released yet. We, the label says they want a really lo-fi, punk, crappy video, and they want to release it to every day. It should be a holiday first. Um, so we, I did. I made a very, very hardcore-looking uh, video because my friend, our very good friend, uh, who was our guitar tech later, he had learned to be a great guitar tech and so we could take him on tour and stuff because he was such a rad and wild, weird guy. Um, he was an ambassador's son, I think. And so he had spent time in um, the nether reaches of the those Asian, kind of what the Chinese call uh, Indochina or used to call Indochina. And I don't remember where it was, but there was some freaky, some freaky videotape on his on his camera. So I put a bunch of that together, and then filmed us in a basement with really dim lights and waving flashlights at each other while we're you know. <laughs> so it looks like we're just the darkest band, and we come from I don't know where, you know, just some second and a half world jungle world. And um, it was a fairly fun. And then, like, then there's rich kids playing in a pool at night. And so I just put, they're not doing anything bad. But if you put black bars over all their <laughs> eyes, it looks really fucking freaky. And 
uh, all of a sudden it's gross and creepy and scary. <laughs> it just gets rapey, you know? <laughs> Teenagers in a pool with black bars over their eyes, it gets fucking bad. So we released that, had a pretty big splash over there. Um, we talked openly about drugs and partying and sex and all that stuff. So the English, you know, went, whoa, 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 daddy, whoa. So what will they think? What will they do next? So that led to this horrible, horrible reputation for just being, you know, a mess, just being absolute trash. So um, uh, we had a series of, you know, successful singles. So anyone that came over here, Spiritualized, Blur, um, The Charlatans, you know, any English cool band that came to America had to have us open for them. So we, and they were coming over. So at one point, I think we were out on tour for, without getting, seeing home for over half a year. It had started out as like a four-week tour, and then two weeks in, so you know somebody else calls up and says, "Oh, they're starting their tour in Jersey, in you know the eighth of next month. So if you don't mind going straight to that tour, you can tour with Blur on their huge hit, you know, song two. So okay, yeah, let's do it, you know, and then, oh, the charlatans are coming over, and now we're in festival season, so now we're going to be doing festivals and playing, you know, in between slots, in between weekends with the charlatans, Midwest and the West, you know, and it just went on and on and on and on and on. And on. So that's kind of it. And then we get over to London, play a, and be a, a big band already, you know, when, when we got back to London after being an indie band, um, yeah, we weren't playing the the Falcon Pub, you know, in Camden Town anymore. We were, you know, we were playing like the Forum. Now, now, Bohemian like you ended up being on a commercial. Did you ever see any of this coming? Because that, you know, you I know you made a nice chunk of change off that for the thing, but how did that end up being on a commercial? And it sort of changed you because that's when you went back and bought the auditor auditorium, right? Well, no. Um, that was, that song was the lowest charting single we had released in England to date when it got released. It, it was the biggest failure we had released on <laughs> two records, uh, released in the UK. So what happened was it became a hit later when we had, we used to be friends, uh, became a hit and it was the sound the theme song to uh, veronica mars which was a hugely successful tv show so it was both of those things at the same time plus the the massive amount of radio airplay because you got paid well radio paid well and maybe still does old school radio uh, so now so i had two songs both generating two heavy duty revenue streams so that was that was just a a really fat time for about three years that i had right there and um you know i did blow a ton of it on partying but you know i i i bought uh a huge place and me and my buddies 
because you know we grew up in this armpit town so we knew how to sheetrock we knew how to plumb we know how to frame we know how to you know pull conduit electrical and um we just went to work you know and we just made it this absolutely stunning place with um Roman columns and a human-sized chessboard floor in ebony and amber cut into the concrete and dyed. And, you know, one room, the mixing room, uh, we've changed it to amber and light gray, you know, but it was only lit by red rectangles of light set kind of Mondrian in these gunmetal, dark gunmetal gray walls, ceiling, floor, carpet, designed the sofa, like Shaquille O'Neal size C-shaped sofa. And, um, you know, you need to have a lot of people lay around when you're partying, tripping real hard, you know. I mean, it was just industrial kitchen, all stainless with safety light set into, like, patterns on the walls. And, you know, I just over-designed the hell out of this place. It's really stunning. And, um, and then kind of the money just went away. So I'm glad, I, you know, I paid for a house, just bought it outright. Because in this business, you don't know when your money's going to come and you don't know when it's going to go. So you you spend it and you don't listen to people tell you, well, you know, you can write off the interest and you take out a loan and da-da-da-da-da. And the next thing you know, like I've seen my friends get, you know, burdened with $180,000 a year in payments because they're making half a million a year, man. I'm rich. It's never going to end. I'm, I'm a genius. I'm successful. You know, and two years later, you know, they're back down to asking the label for money to live, you know, and they have to sell all their stuff. So I, you know, I, I, I didn't party that hard. Wasn't an idiot. <laughs> now I want to talk about, you know, maybe you, I was, what's that? So maybe I was, I don't know. Well, you know, but the thing is when you're, when you're, when you get money, it's like anything, when you get money, you're right. You always think it's going to keep coming. And then I had a deal in Hollywood years ago, and I was like, oh, I don't have to work for two years. And I'm going, holy shit, my money's gone. You know, I'm not, I haven't sold anything else. So it's, I think it's just that ideal, ideology that we think, okay, we did it once, we're going to do it again. And even though in our mind we're going, I don't know, because anyone who's artistic, you know, we're insecure. So we're sitting there. But I think that happens a lot. So you, but you, you, you invest it. So you've got this property. So at least you were smarter than most people who sit there and start paying rent the whole time when it's like, just buy something because you can just buy it. Yeah. You're still going to pay taxes, you know, but I mean, you know, I have a house and I pay rent. My taxes are about equal to a one bedroom apartment, you know? Exactly. So basically I just pretend that money never came. I just got a way cooler apartment. <laughs> no, no, you, we, we mentioned earlier about the pandemic. Um, is that when you wrote The Summer of Hate, or was that something you wrote recently? The new, yes, the new of single? course, yeah, yeah. I mean, Portland was being destroyed. Um, you know, mobs were coming into town and, and rioting, and, it, you know, and it, 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 it had started, you know, like... like like uh, like like San Francisco, you know, people called that the summer of love. But um, my uncle lived there from '64 to '71, and it was not the summer of love. It, it started as the summer of love, and they're so beautiful, flowers in your hair, and it was just criminals, rapists, murderers, crooks, 
breaking into buildings, stealing shit out of stores to survive, breaking into people's homes. And, you know, I mean, it was 200,000 people descend upon a city and have nowhere to, no job, no nothing to live on. No, you know, they're just animals, right? And they're desperate uh, to survive like any animal. And so um, that was what was going on in Portland. And we still have it. You know, we've still got thousands and thousands of homeless people breaking into homes, breaking into businesses, breaking in, obviously cars. You know, no, you don't go down, you don't go, you don't go into town and, and have dinner, a nice dinner anymore. You can't, you know, you just, you'll get your car, will get broke, your your window, it's not worth it. It's going to be 480 bucks to have your window replaced. That's a, too expensive. That Then your dinner is, you know, that on top, that, that is part of your dinner cost. So um, it was just angering. And, and not only that, and then we had Donald Trump, and you don't, I mean, that was, talk about a, a caustic uh, individual, you know, like a guy that just creates hostility. That's that's the game. That's the name of the game to just incite hostility, um, and so that's on, and that's what's you know, I mean that's kind of what drives people to do this to get together to protest something that needs to be protested, but you know how how many angelic people are there in that gang, you know, because a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are just like, woohoo, they just see an opportunity, I'm going to get in on this, and then I'm going to start trashing things, or, I mean, you know, so it was, it was absolutely the worst uh, experience, you know, that, that certainly I've ever experienced, never knowing if your car is going to get attacked when you're driving home from work, whether your work is going to get attacked while you're at work, you know. You're, you're, if you're, if you stop to get lunch, is, is that falafel joint going to get attacked while you're in there? Mindless rage of a mob, of a stupid mob of horrible, horrible humans, or maybe even used to be good humans, even worse, incited to this bloodlust. And um, there you go. There's that song. I happen to be born in the summer of love. Also, by the way. Now, how do you how do you start looking at when you're writing lyrics and then you're writing the music when you have, you know, you're, you're very you have a you can tell you have a very opinion about it. You know, this is what you're going through. How do you translate that to the music and to the words? Because it's something that you know you have to hit with it because it's called the summer of hate, so it has to get make a message. Um. Well, you don't name the song first. Well, maybe you do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be funny to have a song called this or clever to have a song called that? But generally, I, I don't. You know, at the end, I go, what is this? You know, and then I ask around the band, you know, would this be a better, this lyric be the better title or would this be the better title? And, you know, I think Pete was like, oh, dude, the summer of hate. <laughs> you know, you, of course you have to call it that. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it comes from a different a different place every time. I think, I don't know. Uh, 
that one was just this amazing guitar riff that Pete had come up with, and then I put that Mexican snare line, drum line, Mexican drum line, that... I put that down as it, um, uh, as the beat, and got the sounds good, and it was just like, God, this is cool, man, this is really cool. What a vibe. And then, um, I don't know, you know, I just stand up and, well, I look through my notes. I started writing thoughts, you know, into my phone, into my notes section. So I had things to go to, uh, like a classic lyricist would, just or an author or anyone who writes, uh, get your ideas in. And then go pick through them when you're in work mode. And so I just stood up and, uh, uh, and it just came out, you know. Um, and I think most of that is literally the first take. Now, now the video, you decided to do AI. Was that your decision? And why AI? Because, you know, there's... Well, we've been, we always work with the same people. We, you know, we're a small town band. So, you know, uh, our guy... <laughs> j-lo um we uh, you know asked hey man you want to make a video for this and he, yeah yeah so uh we sent him girls and boys um the the uh blur video because it's easy to do if you have a green screen it's cheap you can do it for free and uh so um none of us know how to edit though so we get j-lo and he'll shoot stuff and you know we give him nominal amount of money whatever he wants you know he doesn't gouge us or anything and he's a very successful commercial editor so yeah he does fine uh, but he just loves working on art projects with us he's been doing it for 20 years so uh so he shot us on the green screen and then he had made up this amazing background for it of film and then um, he was just going to put us in and, you know, and that would be the video. But he called, he, he emailed us and said, hey, my, another one of my dork, because he's, you know, in this, in this, you know, social world of, of vis video tech dorks. And, you know, they're always playing with the newest stuff. And one of them had just gotten a, an AI app or whatever that had come out that week. So it was the newest. And he had been farting around with it, you know, like day and night for several days. And he thought he could handle it. You know, he was like, I think I can steer it and get, I'm getting some cool stuff out of it. Uh, it's hard, hard to steer, you know. AI is a willful child. Um, but, but, but wants to, you know, it's so much like a person, so much like a child. They want want to please you if you use the right, right if you talk nice, you know. So um, too much stuff, too much st shit in it, and all of a sudden I look like the insane clown posse. Um, there's a, a genitalless uh, caribou muscle demon man, uh, deer hips and in a completely blank crotch I, you know muscles and horns I mean it's just like it puts crazy it does 
crazy weird. I left one in on that video too. There's this really horrible, big, ugly fish face just off to the left, um, kind of two thirds of the way through maybe, and it just kind of and then it pans the the you know fake camera pan past. But all that stuff, you know, the cave and the camera moves and the lighting style and the the bodies and the the motorcycle that is all invented by the AI mind and you put in you type in words or sentences or phrases um, that it it can I guess it just scans the web instantly and gets a bunch of impressions from of what so you say the dandy Warhol so it got impressions of what we're supposed to look like and what we're supposed to be um it made me like a big muscly macho guy. Someone someone not... wrote someone wrote that on a YouTube comment. They said, Oh my god, you got so ripped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm still just a skinny rock dude, you know. Um but it made it decided maybe it thought that that voice could only come out of like a a big hunky beefcake <laughs> so so the video the video has you the shot that when it turns me into a when it turns me into a leather daddy for a split second you turn into fonzie beefcakey leather daddy god that's cool because i would never look like that i would never think to do that i would never work to do that so to see myself you know as this but like leather vinyl straps and stuff that is really cool. I really enjoyed the hell out of seeing that. That's my favorite one. Now, now this song, are you working on a new album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got we got a new record. And now you have a tour coming up. How are you looking forward to that? I mean, how much do you still love, you know, you've been doing it for a long time. Do you still just love going on the road or is it a point now where it's like you go cuz your fans love it but sometimes it gets a little draining cuz as we get older. No, no, no. We don't go out for more than 2 weeks. Okay. Uh, we just did a 6-day tour of the Great Lakes. Holy moly. It was incredible. Talk about refreshing and painless you know like you don't get homesick in six days and it was just a rad adventure and i met the coolest guy um in detroit and so uh me and my buddy who does our monitors uh and uh and this cat from the band and then his buddy uh, uh, we just ran around, you know, we went to Hitsville, Barry Gordy, the Motown studio. We, we went to the oldest jazz club, because uh, we're all kind of jazz cats and in Detroit, it's out off, uh, on, uh, off nine mile, eight mile. What's the name of that movie? Eight mile. Eight mile. M&M's movie. Yeah. Eight mile. eight mile. It's off eight mile. And my, and the dude I met, the, my buddy, Sean, Moro, whose band is called um, Sisters of Your, I can't remember, dude, it's so hard to remember this name, this psychedelic name of it, Sisters of Your Sunshine Vapors, right? That's his band, and they're very, very, very cool guitar rock, space tripper awesomeness 
shoegaze, but then like LSD off out there into mountain, you know, or whatever. Um, we went to the we went to the oldest jazz club, and it was really like, whoa! Have, are we the only white whiteies that have ever walked in here, man? That's just crazy. But everyone was so cool. They were super super cool, actually. And then like five five just the hippest black chicks came in and sat down at the bar next to us, filled up the rest of the seats. And just started the first thing. The one gorgeous, you know, corn road, long corn road hair, the thread, colored threads in it, and stuff. Tattoos, beautiful face. You know, she was just cool. And she goes, "Man, why don't we get more cool-looking white boys in here?" <laughs> and y'all are awesome. So I'm like, you know, uh, and we're like, "Wow, thanks." You know, great. We like to hear that. We like to hear that. Keep it coming. So we ended up hanging out with them. And my buddy had taught for 10 years, uh, my new buddy had taught for 10 years in, a, in like a last chance, super hard down and out ghetto school. Uh, he taught English there. And when they, you know, because he's like, hey, yeah, where are you all from? What part do you live in? And they're like, oh, we live blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh. I taught school and and he told them you know whatever the name of that neighborhood was and they all just shut up and just their heads just kind of staring at him like what what he goes yeah yeah I know I know yeah you know but you know he he was fine he was he was totally fine and he might have really helped some some kids and whatever but he, you know it was cool it was like being in a completely different country and I had never really experienced, you know, the the soul music and the jazz music side of, and that's all we did, you know, the art, weird found art museum project, and I mean, it was, I, I really dug. I, I I like Detroit. I, I'm, I'm now I am completely surprised that Jack White would move to Nashville over Detroit. It's crazy. So. Two more questions. One, when did the one-sentence movie reviews come up? Because I think it's a great idea on the website. Because I'm tired of, you know, you try to read a review and it's like 18 pages long and you go, fuck this, I don't feel like doing this. One set, what, what, what made you come up with the one-sentence movie reviews on the website? That is exactly why I did it. <laughs> Just, you know, you have to, you have to um, really have subtext. And and because I had written a screenplay and worked it over for years, de you know, decades really, um, you learn a lot about subtext if you if you really want to be a good writer. So um, I I realized that I could imply, you know, uh, wit, you know, a bit of humor with brevity, um, and you and I could also uh, imply maybe why, what kind of bad it is. Or what kind of good it is, you know. So, um, like, basically, like Troy, my review of is it called Troy? Is that yeah. is that the one with um, uh, the Irish the Irish actor with, and then it's like a Brad Pitt with this like yeah, kind of Duran Duran bouffant Duran Duran yeah. yeah. Just bleach blonde, white guy with tan, uh, a 
apparently a Greek. And, you know, and it's just, his makeup is visible, and it's just absolutely unwatchable because of just that alone, just the way they look was... No, Troy, I don't think it was Troy. I think Troy... Was it? God, I don't remember now. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was unwatchable because I was so distracted by the by the super wonderful 80s camp hairstyles and makeup. I couldn't believe these ferocious warriors were, <laughs> you know, so shishi and vogue and, you know, 80s, you know, throwback hip. So that one, I just kind of, I think it was like, a, oh my gosh, look at his hair. Oh, he, he, oh, oh, ha. You know, it was just laughing in his hair. And that kind of tells you what I thought of the movie. That was, you know, and why. Um, they are entertaining. Yeah, what was the first one? Well, first one was Pee-wee's Big Adventure, maybe? And what'd you write? I don't know. Probably, like, this is possibly the greatest movie ever made. It certainly arguably is, you know. And yet you had, you had good uh, words for Ryan Gosling and Barbie. Oh, my God. What on earth? That guy. I had just watched 2043 on a plane on an international flight you know where you've got hours and you go well okay i'm gonna uh, i'm just gonna watch the new blade runner again and i was and i was and this was like maybe march or may or june of this year so it was fresh in my mind uh, watching him specifically because it's probably the third or fourth time i've seen it um and i'm watching him specifically really going this guy is the best actor he is absolutely transportive and he, it's just stunning to to if you can maintain objectivity while this guy is doing his thing you really can identify that this guy is like a fucked up level of actor he is just so solid and reliable and he does it and he knows how he can pause for a long time and let the feeling build and he can deliver almost any kind of line. And then what whiskey tango foxtrot. He is hysterical. His comic timing is like Michael J. Fox level. Like he's like, he has just has timing. It's, it just, it's easy for him. It just seems so easy. And that's, you know, any great actor will tell you comic is the thing that they have probably the hardest time with. You know, it takes a real special actor to to do it. And then somebody who can act. I, I think he's probably the best actor in the world now. He is great. So I got one final question for you. Okay. Thank you for Good, that. Because I've got to piss like a hostage. Now. Okay, right, I do too. Right real quick. Okay, before we go. You've had a very you have a successful career, long career. What would you say is the highlight, the highlight of your career, one defining moment to you that has made you feel like a success or just made you go, holy shit, I've had a good life? You know, my whole relationship with David Bowie was uh, amazing. You know, there's a picture, I think there's still a picture online of, you know, me on stage with him, and he... He had, he had, before we walked on stage, he had introduced me to his biographer, Mark, I think it's like Mark Spitz, um, Mike Spitz, uh, 
and and he said he just reminded me that um, the only other time I've ever during a Bowie concert um, ever asked somebody on to come on stage and sing with me was Lou Reed, uh, and he chose the same song you did, Courtney, uh, and it was. 30 years ago this week in this room, the Royal Festival Hall. Now, I know he's he's had, like, his birthday party show where he had tons of people up on stage, you know, and, and um, most wonderfully was Robert Smith and had Robert sing one of his songs, which was fantastic. But um, I thought, but just that he bothered to tell me that, you know, and that, you know, the with the, with the, um, whatever you call that kind of word when it sort of validates another statement. Um, but, but yeah, being during the Bowie concert, being the operative of why I'm the last living person that, um, you know, he's ever done that was, was really something, but, um, you know, Joe Strummer coming up and finding me and poking me in the back really hard. Like someone's going to pick a fight with me was, uh, and turning around with the foot in, like, oh my, Joe, you know, you're a hard person to get to get a hold of, Mr. Taylor Taylor. And uh, that, you know, and he, and he said, uh, I was the singer in the coolest band in the world. Now you're the singer in the coolest band in the world. How the fuck does that feel, mate? Um, you know, those kind of moments, just being validated by the gods of, of, rock and cool rock and stuff like that that those were the those were the ones that really um that really stand out uh you know finishing a record and having it released the, the first time you actually put out you get the record done you get the artwork done you put out you know that that has happened to me uh, a great number of times now too um but those are the kind of the things. Anytime you do something new, direct a video, get it on an MTV plays it. You know, that was spectacular. You know, um, sitting up with Robert Smith, drinking Greek white wine until the sun came up. And, you know, like these, these things are, are, I mean, they're like that, uh, you know, that, uh, ships off the flaming ships off the Orion on the you know right. the, the whatever that uh, last line of, of Blade Runner where Roy Batty is just sitting there going if you could see you know well you've had a very yeah. good life my friend uh I want to thank you for coming on. People, go to dandywarholes.com. Check out their new uh, video, The Summer of Hate. Uh, it'll be on tour soon, so go to dandywarholes.com. Uh, go to my website, uh, coopertalk.net. You can find over 970 episodes. Uh, email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.